Welcome to episode 39 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. To check out all the shows, search for STMSS in the Google Play or Apple App Store. You can download an app that will allow you to listen to all the episodes, check out the show notes, and share the episodes with somebody who you think might want to hear it. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member, veteran, and military family suicide. In this series, we have looked at suicide in the military-affiliated population from a number of different aspects, active duty, veterans, National Guard, military spouses, and interventions at the federal, state, and local level. Today, we're looking at it from a historical perspective, the nature of military suicide deaths over the past 200 years. Shauna, what can you tell us about our guests? So today we have for the second time a pair of guests who will share their work and insights. Michael Deutsch, PhD, is a contract historian working for the Department of Defense, where he writes on the history of U.S. military medicine. Jeffrey Smith, PhD, is an associate professor of American history and chair of the history department at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. Together and separately, their work on the history of suicide in the military has been published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, the Washington Post, New York Times, and many other media sources. The collegiality and mutual respect they hold for each other shows up throughout this conversation. In addition, they acknowledge, and so we in turn want to acknowledge, the contributions of Ryan Hanoa, a military veteran and student at University of Hawaii at Hilo, and the work of Dr. Chris Free as important contributors to their efforts. Yes, I am glad that they reached out. Uh, Jeff actually reached out to me and said this is a, a very intriguing aspect, and so it is. And so we'll get into the conversation, and we'll come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. The idea of looking at the historical perspective of suicide in the military is somewhat unique in the work that I've been doing in the last several years. I found myself, as I was going over the research that you were doing, really not thinking past Vietnam. Like Vietnam was the place where I maybe conceptually started about suicide. But Jeff, maybe to start us off, this has been something that's been going on a lot longer than just Vietnam. Yeah, that, that is most definitely correct. And our most recent study that we published with JAMA, the data that we found stretches back into the early 19th century. And so while the military in general and the army specifically wasn't focused on suicide, the idea of tracking it and trying to pull some knowledge and foresight out of those data figures is something that's not new to us. And it's something that progressed over the 19th century in particular with some big spikes that happened close to the turn of the century. And, and Mike, how important do you think this is looking at the historical perspective of suicide in the military and how that can really support maybe some of the things that we're doing now? 
Yeah, it's extremely important. The military is one of the forerunners of public health in America. And this is just something that we don't think about when it comes to the military, because we're so used to conceptualizing it as something that just goes overseas, deals with US enemies, our foreign adversaries, and just comes home and we demobilize it. But the truth of the matter is, is that it's an institution that is charged with training, educating, feeding, clothing, housing, and taking care of the service members within it. And no matter how small or large it gets, it's a large bureaucracy that needs to be concerned with all aspects of that kind of life. And we found that it's really good at, even in the 19th century, conceptualizing interactions between humans and the environment, interactions between humans and each other, and all that. Even if it can't necessarily explain suicide, it can certainly track it uh, through enlightenment principles and scientific data. Building off of what Mike said, some of the earliest data that we found, coincidentally enough, was actually focused on trying to connect health, mortality, morbidity to the environment itself. And so what they were doing wasn't so much trying to find, for example, army-wide figures as much as trying to tag those figures to specific geographic regions and weather patterns and climates and looking at it from that perspective, which isn't exactly a horrible idea, right? Uh, The environment does absolutely affect your health, but trying to approach it from a different perspective of a more kind of universal standpoint of how is the experience of being in the military affecting your health wasn't something that developed initially and it grew organically over time, at least over the course of the 19th century. When I find that, and maybe we come around full circle because now we know the national numbers, but the national numbers are, are definitely too large and too broad, but we're concerned about why suicide occurs at Fort Carson, Colorado or 29 Palms. What can be done in those local communities? And I can see then that would have been done, say, on the East Coast or suicides in the West in the late 1800s. That kind of thing is what you're referring to. Yeah, they're definitely concerned in the 19th century with the spike that happened in out west. And they're probably also at the time not cognizant of, but again, this is where history can play a role, just a larger seismic shift that's happening in the latter half of the 19th century that just the U.S. as a whole is going through some fairly significant changes as you're transitioning from that agrarian kind of disparate lifestyle into a more urban industrialized one. And the military is, of course, involved in the process as well, too with military outposts getting pushed further out west as that process and westward expansion plays out. At the time, it's understandable that they didn't quite see the way all these puzzle pieces fit together. But now from our perspective, you can see some of that, I think, echoing even in a modern stance where you're noticing in the 20th and 21st century transition away from, say, manufacturing towards a more digital service-based economy and then the military itself is also transitioning in a similar fashion. You know, and, and I definitely would like for you to maybe go over some of these. When you sent me the report and I saw the, the just the numbers, it was staggering, the rate of suicide in the military, specifically in the Army, late 1800s versus what's going on now. Could you speak through some of your data, maybe briefly, really talking about some of the different bands of information you saw, and then really talking about some of the the different things that you've seen as far as reducing suicide over time? Sure. I could probably pick up with the 19th century. And then as we bridge into the 20th, I'd probably defer to Mike here that can talk more about the contemporary figures. But what we saw are the numbers 
starting out relatively low, right, prior to the Civil War. Granted, the military was a different animal then. Population figures were a lot smaller. Just a few suicides up or down would significantly impact the rates, of course. And you're also talking about a U.S. Surgeon General's office that really wasn't equipped, and so it's not really their fault, for being able to track these figures during wartime. So they freely admit in their reports that, for example, during the Mexican-American War, they basically just look at the most macro of trends and figures. They, they really don't try during the fog of war to do much about it, which makes their tracking during the U.S. Civil War all the more impressive. Of the many firsts of the U.S. Civil War, it's really the first time you have true widespread, real-time, basically medical tracking during the wartime effort. And what they start noticing is, of course, coming out of the Civil War, a significant increase in the suicide rate that builds up and basically starts to reach a crescendo there as you're getting towards the turn of the 20th century. What exactly those figures mean, I got to admit, to plead a little bit of ignorance, Mike and I are still working on some of those figures, and we've got some theories there, but it's something that starts playing out more in the 20th century that probably Mike can talk more about as to things that the military starts doing to try to address and bring some of those rates back down. And so in the suicide rates in the late 1800s were significantly higher compared to, to rates today. Yes, correct. By significant factors. What you're possibly seeing there is a military that isn't really composed or operating in a similar fashion to what you have today. You have a military that is basically constantly under strain. You also have a military somewhat disconnected from the civilian population. It's a relatively small percentage of the U.S. population. And when you look at their activity out in the West, there's a certain amount of disconnect between those military operations and probably the day-to-day lives of most people on the East Coast at that time. And that disconnect could be something that probably would be worth studying further there as to what effect that's having. And so, Mike, as the late 1800s in and then in the 1900s and in your research, and definitely the the article will be linked in the show notes, but suicide rates begin to generally drop and, and each of the drops really correspond with some of the 20th century conflicts. That is correct, which at the end of the 19th century in the military are two important things. One is that you're going to see the beginning of the general staff system. This is going to be borrowed from the Germans. It's going to be incorporated into the American army. And the American army is going to professionalize at this time. So this is where we get our staff officer system, the S2 and the S3 and all that of operations, intelligence, so on. At the same time, the U.S. military's medical uh, department is also going to professionalize, and they're going to have a, a better and more sophisticated apparatus by which to detect, judge, and make sense of these numbers. What you have here is that there are army bases now with medical service corps officers and medical officers who are in charge of telling the base commander, these are effectively the top 10, top five problems on your base, medically speaking. You have alcoholism, you have venereal disease, whatever it is. And then he's going to recommend solutions that the base commander is going to enact to start reducing suicide. At the same time in the 20th century, the American landscape is changing from an agricultural, early pre-industrial, even industrial revolution in our environment to something that is more commercialized, that is something to more connected and whatnot, so that you yourself are taking your paycheck 
and you're spending it at the mall, you're spending it at Macy's and whatnot, you're driving down the street, the bases themselves are getting more and more towns interlocking them. Electrification is allowing people to stay out longer. You have cars that shrink the American system so that you can actually conceive of getting to New York and Mississippi in your lifetime. The world is becoming smaller and people are becoming more interconnected. So it's not just simply these wars that we're seeing this drop off in the big grand scheme of things. The 19th century gives way to the 20th century and American soldiers are becoming more and more incorporated into American society. And, and definitely can see through, and, and again, this is just an amazing visual chart that accompanies your, your article but the suicide rate gets lower and lower, which each successive conflict until we get to the Vietnam War, and then the paradigm seems to change. Yeah, it begins to rise up again post-Vietnam. Although for the most part, like I, I look at Vietnam as a spike and then you see it drop off in the 80s and 90s and stick and hover around like somewhere between 15 to 20 per 100,000 or so until basically 2004. And that's where you really start to see the rise. And that's what's perplexing the specialists and scientists today is why this rise. That's why they're concerned with it. That's why it even makes sense to have this podcast and be concerned with it is because what is the contemporary environment doing that's driving this rate up? And so the answer is, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but the history can at least inform to say, look, this is not a problem that necessarily just began in 2004. In fact, it was much worse in the 19th century and in the early 20th century. And then in World War II, it just absolutely plateaued and introduced a new paradigm that continued about until 2004, for whatever reason. And along with the journal article, there was an article that you published in the Washington Post where it definitely it's, it's very hard with all of the variables and we're going over the past 200 years of looking at this, but you made some pretty compelling arguments about some possible future, maybe points of research or something that, that there are some reasons why the suicide rates could have dropped after World War I, after World War II, and even in the mid 80s, as you mentioned, Mike, that that could be something that we need to look at right now, Jeff. Yeah, this is building off a, a lot of work that Mike has done and one of our other colleagues, Professor Chris Free, ha has looked into as well too. And that, yeah, the, as, as piggybacking off of what Mike just said, that professionalization of the service and that further integration of it into the American life and making the military a viable long-term career option are all things that we think may have actually helped, at least it looks like for timing purposes, would have helped suppress the rates. And that you'd be talking about an era in which you'd be further integrating the military into the civilian population, trying to break down some of that military-civilian divide. And that all of those things seem to have had a positive impact there on bringing down the suicide rates. Some of the specific programs Mike can probably talk to a little bit better than I. But from what we've been seeing, those all seem to be factors that had played a positive role there as far as we could see. Mike? Absolutely. I, I think that what the, the key factor here to, to pay attention to is that rates declined from the 19th to the 20th century, despite the fact that the services themselves, especially the army here that we're studying, never came up with a mental health program to genuinely tackle the rates. So after World War I, after World War II, there's this new paradigm introduced, but there were not attacking it on a mental health level. 
So what in the world drove down the rates if we're not actually dealing with people on a mental health level? Did their mental health just naturally improve and that's why suicide reduced? Or are there other factors to suicide? And so what Jeff and I posit is that this is a tale of enfranchisement. This is a tale where the legal and financial protections that are extended to service members over time and how they gradually increase, combined with professional and personal growth opportunities, leads to a general enfranchisement of soldiers into the civilian sector. And by virtue of that, you create a career, you create um, a pathway in which soldiers can interweave themselves into civilian life, and they can see a future for themselves. And when you can see a future for yourself, when you can see that you can actually have a spouse, that you can own a home, that you can own a car, that you can have vacations, that you can have retirement, if you can see personal and professional growth, then it's much more difficult to imagine a future in which you might take your own life because opportunity exists. You are not isolated from those variables that cause or at least stress or induce suicide and suicidal ideation in people. And, and I actually had another guest on a different show, uh, Sebastian Younger, and he was talking about how perhaps the affluence of our society has gone beyond that. He described it as veterans after they leave the military are able to be put on a shelf. They're able to be given a, a sustainable-ish living wage, and then they're able to be cared for separately. And so there's no, it, it, we go from this disenfranchisement, no integration with the military to an enfranchisement to now enfranchisement, but separation. Would that be an accurate sort of way of looking at this continuum? I would certainly agree to a certain extent. I think that what happens is post-Vietnam that America comes up with a paradigm where you hate the war, not the warrior. And you basically say to the effect that, you know, everyone we sent to Vietnam, they were good people, but the war itself corrupted them. And Americans don't want to ever turn away from veterans again, understandably. But in so doing, we've become reflexive in our patriotism. We say thank you for your service without actually understanding what that service means or without even necessarily asking them to be reintegrated into our society or ourselves be willing to undertake hardships on their behalf. So if we deploy them to war, at the same time, we're asking for tax reductions, when in fact, in the past, taxes have paid for war. So we've understand that bloodshed must come with a cost to your wallet, that you must pay for that bloodshed. And that's one of the ways in which we've kept that kind of civil military divide from getting too sparse. At the same time, too, after Vietnam, we also create the all-volunteer force, which has created the best military we've ever had in terms of its ability to be combat capable. But it also, again, has reinforced that divide from America so that congressmen and civilians such as ourselves, we don't actually know what it is to necessarily serve in the military. We've become detached from that. Only a small percentage pay in blood. And so, Jeff, and this is what you were referring to is this spike that you see in the late 1800s as the military is, is something that someone else does, right? Maybe people in the East Coast or the developing Midwest might have an understanding of it, but it's something that happens out on the frontier. It's not something that your neighbor does. Correct. The papers at the time, of course, would love to publish articles about conflict, different skirmishes, different sensational headlines. But when you think about it from a day-to-day -day perspective, other than reading the article and perhaps discussing it with your friends and maybe somewhat knowing somebody who serves, how much of that actually impacts what those people were doing? And so building off of what you were saying there, you can watch the news every night about something that might be happening in Afghanistan or previously in Iraq, but how much of that actually impacts what a lot of civilians do 
on a day-to-day basis. And Mike said, we're in an era in which, ironically enough, somehow we're in a setup where you see taxes being cut during wartime not even increase to help pay for the war effort. And what Sebastian Younger was talking about, and some other people have as well too, we're also entering into an era where not just veterans, but individuals can pretty much operate at a certain level autonomously from society as a whole. You could, in theory, work from home, right? And you could order all of your food and necessities and things to be delivered to your house and communicate with, you know, other people via the internet and not really have much in the way of a meaningful connection with other people. And that creates a certain amount of isolation that is possibly at least one of the factors here. And as you mentioned before, probably a factor of affluence, And so how that plays out for us is something that we still don't fully understand there, but that creates yet another level of disconnect that you experience, not just between, say, civilians and the military, but between pretty much everyone at this point. And definitely looking at this has given me that different perspective. Again, if we don't look, then we're not surprised at the things that we look at is that, and again, I recommend listeners uh, to go to the show notes and and really look at this to see how much significantly higher they were in late 1800s and then how now in the early 2000s, how it is the highest that it was in the entire 20th century, except for the very beginning, I believe, right? And and how this, what you're talking about, are the public health approach aspects. These things we've been talking about is economic stability, connectedness, housing stability. All of these things play a factor that we know now. We seem like we discovered it, but this seems to be what has been the pattern as when individuals are more connected, they do have more economic stability, there is less likely to be suicide. And it's not necessarily just a mental health problem. Absolutely. If you take just the end of World War II as an example, you have the GI Bill, and that is going to fund so many veterans and service members at the time who are going to take advantage of it. They're going to use the GI Bill to buy a home because there'll be a home allowance for them. They're going to use that home allowance to actually buy them some time to get maybe a four-year degree, get themselves set up, shift into the civilian sector, and be able to you know, afford the house, the education, the job, the wife, the kids, and all of that, and they'll become connected into society. It's one of the most forward-thinking pieces of legislation that the U.S. Congress has ever come up with because it recognized that at the end of war, there is always an economic downturn. So how do you shrink that economic downturn? You invest in the people. But the thing is that Congress nor the people at the time were thinking about suicide. It just seems to be a byproduct of it. And that's what leads us to a new understanding that potentially this is really about enfranchisement, not all economics driven, but that economics are one of the means by which U.S. society remains socially connected and allows us to do the things we want to do and even grow in the professional and personal means we want to grow. And also just in general, find spouses, move on with life, achieve the things we want to do. That freedom, those freedoms that we attach to this world, those freedoms that we attach to being an American are tied to economics, liberty, and our own aspirations. And so Jeff, where do you go from here? This isn't the last study. I think this is the the beginning of um, this research and as compelling as it is, where do we go from here? I think one of the places, at least, that we're looking is trying to branch out beyond the military 
where a lot of what we've been discussing here is that connection between the military and civilian populations. And so trying to look for some longer trends that perhaps pair up between those populations. And as Mike pointed out, looking in the past for what has seemed to have a positive impact for us, considering that you didn't really have uh, a mental health policy that was specifically trying to address things, looking for other factors that were helping to suppress the rate. And from a comparative standpoint, looking for commonality there, I think is something that is really enticing to Mike and I, Chris as well too. I should also mention that one of our co-authors, Ryan Hanoa, is a veteran and he helps us with a lot of the material on the data side and that we've already been crunching the numbers here for some of this and that it's, it's pretty interesting stuff. Mike, your thoughts on the way ahead? Uh, absolutely. Jeff has been driving this from the very beginning. He's the one who first approached me and it has been a great partnership ever since. The key thing here that we need to get at is we need to recognize that the military, even as segregated as it may be from the U.S. civilian populace today, it is a reflection of the American state. And because it draws from America, it's going to reflect in some way America. And so to sit there and say the military must have different suicide rates than the rest of America because it's just some unique entity and whatnot is actually to go back to that foolish, in a way, reflexive patriotism where we see ourselves as fundamentally apart. There's a divide there, but we draw from the same values. We draw from the same people. And we need to understand that there are going to be some parallels that are going to inform better studies and understanding about the suicide problem in America. And we do know this, that the suicide problem in America is not limited to the U.S. military. It is actually a civilian problem that has risen since the mid-2000s, maybe even previously. And we've tied it to the opioid epidemic. We've asked questions about what the pandemic will do to suicide in America and all that. So broadening this out and, and being more inclusive in humanities can be an absolutely essential mechanism by which we inform policy, we inform debates, we inform just basically the road forward and the solutions ahead. You know, I, I appreciate that uh, point of view um, and definitely all of this information. I, I really appreciate you both coming on the show. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I think what you can see in the GEM article that we put out and then hopefully our follow-up article as well too and study is that there's actually quite a bit to be learned from history. And it's too trite to say that history repeats itself, but there are lessons to be learned. And studying these historic patterns and what played out, I think history can inform our current discussion of what's happening and hopefully have a positive impact here moving forward. Yeah, to echo what Jeff has just said, uh, history doesn't repeat, but it does often rhyme. And in the 19th century, Emil Durkheim was talking about enfranchisement. He just was using different words. But in his first studies of suicide and what in the world to make of it, he was basically saying, how socially connected are you? And examining that kind of question is something that we can do here today. Because the bottom line is that while scientists must be a part of this discussion, we feel that humanities must also be part of this discussion because suicide is fundamentally a part of the human condition. And that's the whole purpose of history in, in and of itself. It's to explain what drives the human condition. Why do events matter? Why do people matter? Why do ideas matter? And we're just simply trying to help answer that question. So to the, whatever degree we can, we want to help inform those debates, policies, and procedures moving forward. Yeah, that's great. Thank you both. This was a fascinating conversation for me, as I think you might have been able to tell by my enthusiasm in the interview. 
And I think it's important to understand where we came from to be able to know where we go from here. For me as well, I thought this was just so important to include in this series. First, I'd like to acknowledge what I see as the inverse relationship between sacrifice and spectatorship. On July 21st, 1861, Washingtonians trekked to the countryside near Manassas, Virginia, to watch the first major battle of the American Civil War in what later became known as the Picnic Battle. Rich folks showed up in their shiny carriages, lavishly dressed to see and be seen by their fellow elites, while taking in the spectacle of a soldierly skirmish. Sitting on picnic blankets, chasing bites of their sandwiches with sweet drinks, they watched from what they thought was a protected hill. War as entertainment, soldiers' sacrifice as a social spectacle. As Michael and Jeffrey point out, the cohesion between those who serve in the military and the rest of society strengthened during World War I and World War II. Economic sacrifice is mentioned as part of this, the understanding that everyday Americans should tighten their belt instead of eating cake to fund the war effort. But more than this were social movements that helped bridge the sacrifice gap. For example, American women came out in droves to work in factories, creating physical goods and munitions needed to support the war. War cost people something, not just their money, but their comfort. As a result, I think many Americans felt that we were all in the fight together, everyone contributing in their own way. Contribution and sacrifice was expected of us, and it felt good. It also translated in some healthy ways to how we received our service members back into society. Rather than coming back as competitors for good jobs, they were coming back as irreplaceable members of our society with much to give and receive from us. I don't think it's felt that way since Vietnam. I agree. There is that phrase, especially one that maybe in the past, but definitely veterans of my generation derisively say, we went to war and America went to the mall. I've heard that a a number of different times. Um, But this puts me in mind, as mentioned in the interview of my conversation with Sebastian Younger, in which he said that we are at a point in the affluence and the economy of our country where we can essentially pay other people to do these things. In this all-volunteer force, they mentioned this in the interview about how it is a little bit of that ability to have an all-volunteer force that allows someone to keep this at arm's length. Yeah, you know, I think about some of the Vietnam veteran patients I've served and the the understandable helpless rage that they felt when sometimes the people that were giving orders were doing so from a safe distance at a base. And it makes me think that all of us, in a sense, are those people potentially to the degree that we just make no sacrifice of our own and just send others into battle um, with no understanding of what that costs people and no part in that personally. So I also want to emphasize the concept of reflexive patriotism. Every year we donate hundreds of millions of dollars to causes that support service members, veterans, and first responders. We allow our military service members to board airplanes before we do. We honor them at ball games. We have an insatiable appetite for movies like American Sniper, books written by Navy SEALs, and warrior stories on television like Jack Ryan, The Unit, and SEAL Team. What is reflexive patriotism? It's a socially scripted behavior that is disconnected not only from meaningful personal sacrifice, but also disconnected from any deep understanding of the values of those who serve. Despite all the thanking veterans for their service, today's veterans tell me that they feel no better understood by society than our Vietnam veterans did. 
They tell me that they often feel invisible, like ghosts trying to navigate through a culture that has values completely different from their own. Many Americans in society, including many who serve in healing roles, seem to think that veterans come back traumatized by what they see and do in combat. Yet this could be a classic red herring in the end. The 2015 study of nearly 4 million U.S. service members and veterans found that deployment to Iraq and Afghanistan is not associated with an increased risk of suicide. So the idea that veterans die by suicide because they deploy to war zones appears to be a misconception. And I've talked to Sebastian Junger directly about this, and we totally agree on this. And in fact, he really encouraged me to make this point whenever I can. What's worse than lack of support, I think what's even more mind-bending, is the appearance of support that turns out to be a mirage in an endless sandpit of misunderstanding. The research of Dr. Smith and Deutsch should push our thinking and help us see these issues with much greater clarity. That brings me to the idea of why was Vietnam the anomaly, right? As Michael and Jeff uh, sort of start to identify as how things in the latter half of the 20th century started to change in relation to combat and suicide and conflicts and suicide. And then I think about how, in, and I was a junior in high school in, in 1991 when the Gulf War came about. And so I had grown up as the son of a Vietnam veteran and nephew of Vietnam veterans. And, and I think the nation through the 80s was preparing to, or had gotten to the point of separating the war from the warrior. And then, of course, I remember in the Gulf War, it was all of the yellow ribbons around every tree and that that's reflexive patriotism, but it was almost a way to try to absolve the nation from the guilt of how it responded to Vietnam. And, and then it maybe just became part of something else that you do. You see a veteran, you thank them for their service, and, and it's no longer an anomaly. It's almost as automatic, whereas maybe in the Gulf War, it really was a, a true reflexive response to how we address service members in the 70s. I just, I really often fail to realize how much uh, an impact Vietnam and the nation's response to Vietnam has even 50 years later. And I think it's going to continue because I think it was a real turning point in how we treated our veterans. I've said this before, and it's probably worth emphasizing that I, I think the hero worship is not really how to bring people home. It's really coming back to a society that sees them and sees their pain and sees their sacrifice and all of their great qualities and just folds them back into community. And that's not what I think we're doing very well as a society now. Yes, and I think that's really in a lot of the conversation we had in this show is that's how, in many ways, that's how the suicide rate had been reduced around World War II was that reintegration where maybe that's something that we really need to, as a nation, decide this goes back to that idea of it's not just the mental health professionals or it's not just someone else who's addressing suicide in the military population. It's actually all of us. We appreciate everybody for taking the time to check out the show. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS39 or by downloading the app by searching STMSS in the Apple app or Google Play stores. In the show notes, you can get the links for everything we talked about in this episode, as well as finding the show on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions and let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group moderated by the outstanding D. James 
by going to bettermentalhealth.com forward slash group. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us, and the work that I'm doing by checking out my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror, Mental Health and Wellness in Post-Military Life. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to them in the show notes. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. And always remember you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1. Chat online with them at VeteranCrisisLine.net or texting 838-255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution and make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.